Today's guest's job is mainly focused on getting lacrosse into the Olympics. His name is Jim Sher, and he's the CEO of the Federation of International Lacrosse. Here are three things about this podcast, the why, the how, and the what. Here's the why. It's lacrosse time. Big time. May is madness for our sport. The NCAA Selection Committee just announced the 16 teams that will compete for a national championship this Memorial Day weekend at Gillette Stadium in Boston. Major League Lacrosse is four weeks into 2018, and the National Lacrosse League is thick into playoffs. Here's the how. At this year's U.S. Lacrosse Convention, I recorded my first ever live podcast with Jim, which was organized by Inside Lacrosse and Terry Foy. Shout out TF. This is the playback. I sat with Jim Sher to talk shop which is dense in sports. He's an Olympic wrestler and former CEO of the USOC, which is the governing committee in the United States that works directly with the International Olympic Committee. Jim oversaw all ops and performance in over 10 years of Olympic competition across all sports. Here's the what. We discussed the state of lacrosse. If you caught it, the New York Times put out a great article this past week on the sports growth geographically and culturally. Jim and I put an exclamation point on where our game is and what needs to happen for us to get to the next level. Now, enjoy my first ever live podcast with Jim Sher. Jim, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Very, very impressive list of guests, and, and sorry I'm, I bring that down a bit, but uh, very glad to be here. I, I think you are the ideal candidate, but let's start with your background in wrestling, individual sport, which I think there's a lot of learnings team sports like lacrosse can take, but what got you into wrestling and what do you attribute your success starting at the NCAA level, becoming a national champion, and then moving onward to? I didn't have an option to to not wrestle. When I was in third grade, I wanted to be a basketball player. I begged my parents for a basketball hoop in the driveway for my birthday. They got it. I was out there every day practicing with the basketball. My brother went to a couple of local twin brother, went to a couple little local wrestling club practices, came home and decided to demonstrate his new prowess in wrestling in the living room to my, to our parents. And uh, after a couple of days of, of having my uh, nose rubbed in the carpet, I decided, well, wrestling is, is a better route than basketball. Yeah. And, and wrestling to me, especially kind of lacking the mainstream appeal, at least at the professional level, um, kind of runs a little bit parallel to lacrosse, where you pursue a career as a student athlete at Nebraska, you win a national championship, and then is the thought for wrestlers even now, I'm either going to pursue an Olympic or FILA world championship, potentially WWE is what we're seeing some, like Brock Lesnar, um, or do they, most of them transition into the traditional world of business? Yeah, most, most go through college knowing that there's no avenue after after their school's completed, so they're either, you know, they have to prepare for a career. Um, you know, there are a few, and wrestling is one of the sports where very early athletes get the Olympic dream and try and pursue that. College is looked at as, you know, winning an NCAA championship is unique in its own right and a driver, but athletes want to participate in and win an Olympic gold medal. So that's kind of a real driver, but if you're not at that elite level, there's, there's really nothing else. I mean, two athletes went into... Uh, WWE, Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle, yep. um, and the Rex Steiners out of, out of Michigan, who I wrestled in college, but uh, those guys don't resemble the guys they looked like in college. Right. And, and, and what would you say were some of the core characteristics of a, a successful national champion wrestler that you've taken with you and think have crossed over well into your position in the business world? 
Uh, wrestling is an incredibly difficult sport in terms of your ability to, to hang in there and pro progress through the levels. Um, coming up through wrestling and coaching wrestling in college for seven years, you see these kids that go through high school undefeated in you know, Virginia or South Dakota, where I came from, where the high school wrestling isn't quite as good as Iowa and Pennsylvania and California. They get to college, they lose, they start getting beat up in practice, they lose a match or two, and they're done. So um, the, the first trait of the, of the most successful wrestlers is the ability to, to have perseverance, stick with it and learn from um, defeat and not get um, daunted by it and, and stick with it. Um, second is you have to have a goal. You have to have a vision of not only just a goal, but you have to have a vision of where you want to be as a wrestler and what you want to achieve as a wrestler. So not only have that goal, but be able to see it and internalize it because that keeps you, um, keeps you on your path. And wrestling takes an incredible amount of, of work. Um, and so that's kind of the third thing is what I call the three Ds, dedication, um, discipline, and determination. And you have to you know, be in that wrestling room in college three, four times a day. Um, you know, weight room early morning, technique session early morning, something in the afternoon for your main practice and then videotape and technique or, or more conditioning or weight loss in the evening. So it's, it's an incredibly difficult sport. Dan Gable had probably one of the best quotes um, that I've ever heard. He would say when he was working out, and he's the hardest working coach and athlete I've ever seen in, in any sport, but Dan, who won 19 NCAA championships as a coach in 24 years at Iowa, um, and was at one loss in college wrestling and uh, unscored upon in the Olympic Games, um, he would say, you know, when I was working out and I became exhausted, I would, I would start to work harder. And then when I started to um, get to the point where I wanted to head to the showers and quit my workout, I would envision my opponent heading to the showers and then I would work out even harder. And so, um, and that's basically, <laughs> he was in the gym about 20 hours a day as an athlete, maybe too much, but, um, but he carried that through to Iowa. So in, that incredible work ethic is, is tremendously important. And then the last two things I would say is you have to have faith and hope. Um, faith is a conviction of things unseen. You have to believe that you can get to your goal. And hope is a belief that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And so as a wrestler, you have to believe that every day you can get better, you can still improve. So those are kind of the, the things I think are the main characteristics of successful wrestlers. And then it, it doesn't hurt to be a little bit uh, ornery, yeah. a little mean. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, all of those are, are really great lessons. I'm, I'm curious, given the, uh, the impact of a loss and what that has on, on an athlete, it reminds me a little bit of college football in a way, um, and, and the resilience to kind of rebound but individual sports strike me, and, and I, the only individual sport that I played was swimming, and I was younger at the time, but it can be quite lonely. In team sports, you have the benefit of uh, after a loss or a poor game where your teammates played better and got you over the cliff and you won, there's that consultation. And I know in individual sports, uh, you have your strength conditioning coach, in some cases at a high level, your nutritionist, and you get a lot of that access from the USOC or, or, or your team or the university, but to get to the highest level of performance which you were at in an individual sport, did you rely on specific coaches? Were there any that uh, helped you acquire new skill or technique, or a lot of it was self-taught? I mean, this was a different time, too, pre-YouTube, 
where I believe, and, and other forms of technology, younger kids today are able to learn new skill sets by watching others. Uh, previous to this current generation, it was like if you didn't have that coach or a teammate that you could look up to, it was difficult to emulate certain skill sets. What worked for you? Well, there were two huge factors. One is I went through wrestling uh, with my twin brother, and he participated in the Olympic Games in Seoul the same time I did. So we, we drove each other. We, we always called it, you know, competition within, harmony without. So we, we used to fight pretty much every day. Our senior year in, in high school, before our biggest match of the year against our conference opponent, um, somehow we were downstairs warming up in the locker room right after the team warm-ups and the younger guys were wrestling, the lighter weight guys. And we ended up in a free-for-all in the locker room and it ended with me flushing one of his wrestling shoes down the toilet. So he went out with one wet shoe to wrestler, but, but we you know, recovered from that and went out and wrestled. So, it was, so that was kind of a, a dynamic through college. And then he went to Indiana to coach and I went to Northwestern. So we, we split up then. But the other thing was when we went to Nebraska, um, and you have to have a great coach. Our high school wrestling coach had never wrestled. So we had to learn everything on our own. We went to a few summer camps. We were basically pretty unschooled town of 4,000 people in the middle of South Dakota. So it was, that aspect was tough. When we got to the University of Nebraska, the national team program was situated in Nebraska. And that national team coach, a guy named Stan Desick, who was an incredible technician, lived there and would come out and work out with us occasionally and, and help show us uh, a technique. And that, that really helped evolve our, our development in the sport. Gotcha. And on the transition, as we get to your professional career and, and be able to glean as much as we can from the landscape of Olympics. Um, for that wrestler that decides to make that transition, it's, it's, it's eerily similar to lacrosse without an Olympics, but our pro game and the lower wages on average. How were Olympic athletes like wrestling, or we could take others as examples, how were they supplementing income streams to pursue their Olympics? Does that come from the USOC during training, or was a lot of, were you taking a part-time job? It, it changed through the course of, of my career, thankfully. When I was um, competing on the national team from 1982, a couple years still in college, I was supported as a scholarship athlete at Nebraska. And then 85 to 1990, the last five years, I had an assistant coaching job at Northwest, at one year at Nebraska and then at Northwestern. I had a job at a health club on the side um, during the day, and I went to classes for graduate school in the evening. So it was tough. Yeah. And we got one warm-up and one pair of shoes from USA Wrestling and through 1988, the Olympics I participated in. And then in 1989, they started direct athlete support. So before that, if your shoes wore out, if you sent them back, they would send you another pair. They didn't trust that you're, you weren't like getting a free pair of shoes to sell them. So, I mean, and we did everything possible to, to make ends meet at that point in time. And so wrestlers were basically living at the poverty level to participate in the Olympic Games. 1989, um, through some funding that USA Wrestling was able to acquire, as well as um, funding from the US Olympic Committee, they started a national team program with direct athlete support. That's one of the most critical things the USOC did in its evolution as a sport governing body was offer support directly to athletes because before that we would give it to the governing bodies, they would take it and spend it on their administrative expenses or um, coaches or, or whatever and not give it to the athletes. Mm. So we started bypassing the governing bodies, 
and giving it directly to athletes. Was that collectively bargained on behalf of the wrestlers, or was that just something um, that changed from USA Something wrestling? that um, the USOC, through a committee, Athlete Performance Committee, that, that I was on as an athlete, um, pushed through the system, and then, and then uh, it was instituted. And it was kind of nice, because in Portland in 1989, I got to walk up in front of the USOC board and assembly, and begin, I was, not only was I on the committee, but I benefited myself, because I was the first athlete awarded uh, direct athlete support from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Was that part of the process that intrigued you around staying on the international level of business, given your MBA and, um, and experience as the athlete? It, being on the USOC board did, mm. and it was a little bit of happenstance. I just happened to get elected as an athlete representative onto the US, uh, USA Wrestling Board. I became the athlete that was selected to go on the U.S. Olympic Committee board, and then was selected to the U.S. Olympic Committee Executive Committee. And, so I had an idea of the workings of, of sport management and sport administration, and I thought I was going to end up in the um, financial uh, sector. Yep. I was an MBA at Northwestern, but it ended up that I wanted to keep wrestling for another year and went to work at USA Wrestling and stayed on the path and never left. Yep. I love that following your passion and maybe foregoing a more lucrative career in finance, but I, I want to address the five-year period post-Nebraska into the Olympics before you took on the executive director position of, of USA Wrestling, which is the NGB, we've talked a little bit about that. You won multiple world championships. A direct question is the FILA, um, and you won US national championships, you went to the 88 Olympic Games. Why, and I feel it's right, why do they have competitions, wrestling specifically, every year? And then when you look at a sport like lacrosse, Without an Olympic presence, why do we only have a world championship every four years? It seems to me like the audience in any sport, you gravitate at, at before professional level grows. If it does, you gravitate towards college and international. College we have, as we know, as an annual basis, Final Four is kind of the pinnacle of our sport celebration, top teams in college. International, we have to wait every four years. Have you noticed that discrepancy? Is that something that's on your agenda as the CEO of FIL? Um, it is, and I, one of the things that I was, um, one of the things that was laid before me as a goal when I was hired was to, to help reimagine the events platform for the International Federation. Because I think that certainly, both in terms of how we create more of an impact for lacrosse around the world, how you create a better opportunity to get in the Olympic Games, and then how you create an engine that creates content and provides uh, uh, content that can be monetized for the sport, mm -hmm. we have to have more than the five championships. Um, and so it's one of the things that will be on our board agenda this weekend to discuss. And in wrestling, the Olympics is, is great. If you're a U.S. athlete, you know, the Olympics is, is your ultimate goal. Around the world, the world championships is at an equally high level as the Olympic Games. Um, and, a, and for a wrestler, if you win a world championships, it's viewed as maybe even a more difficult proposition than the Olympic Games because the Olympic Games is a limited field. So in the world championships, you'll have 60, 60 70, 80 athletes in your weight class. The Olympic Games is now limited to 16. So you have an easier draw. Um, and, some, and they put countries in the Olympic Games from various continents because they want to make, they want to have participation from all over the world. So you might have an easier draw in the Olympics than you would in the Worlds. So the Worlds is a very prestigious competition. So you have, but you have World Cups, yep. you have the World Championships, World Cups, which is a team competition, 
every year when I was competing. You have the Grand Prix series, which is a series of, of five to seven tournaments around the world. And then you have a, another set of what they call Class A international competitions. So there's no shortage. I was competing 50, 60 matches a year, which wow. is probably too many internationally when I was uh, finished from, had finished at Nebraska in the five years I was coaching until I retired in 1990. Hmm. Sounds, it sounds a bit like fencing uh, in some of those A other bit in terms sports. of the, and, and I think a lot of the individual sports, the competition cycles are, are pretty clear. Team sports, a lot of them will have their world championships every two years yeah. instead, of, instead of every year, because every year it's a difficult, it's more difficult, I think, for a, a national federation or national governing body to, to get a, a team in camp and get that team um, prepared for a world championships every year like it, like it is for wrestling. Yeah, I, I would like to see us go to two years and potentially add a different style of event. Uh, another example of, of certainly a tournament that carries more weight in a team sport than the Olympics would be the World Cup, um, where in, in many cases some of the prominent countries in the world don't send their top players to compete in the World Cup, or sorry, in, in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, so 89 to 90, then you jump immediately from a world champion to the executive director of, of USA uh, Wrestling. What kind of happened there, and, and how did you know personally that, all right, it's time to leave the mat and enter the business room? That was, that's a, a bit of an interesting story. I had gone to, to um, Phoenix to coach Arizona State, and I had, uh, was supposed to start a job um, at a bank in Phoenix uh, on the next, next Monday. I went to Colorado Springs for a visit and uh, never left. They, essentially, the, I was a treasurer. I had been elected. I went for a USA, USA Wrestling Board meeting, visit some friends at the training center, and I was heading back to Phoenix to start my job on, on Monday. And, and I was an assistant coach at ASU and, and banking. And I thought, well, I may keep wrestling, but I'll transition to business. And the organization was in severe financial difficulty. Um, I had intended to resign from the board because I was going to start, start working. Um, the first day of the board meeting, I announced my intention to resign. Two or three in the morning, or actually all, all night basically, people would come to my hotel room door and knock on the door and give me a 15, 20-minute pep talk about I had to run for treasurer the next day. I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm you know, starting a new career, and I might end my wrestling. And Eventually, by the course of the morning, with three or four visits, I decided to run for treasurer of USA Wrestling because the, the, a number of people on the board felt they weren't getting the correct financial information and thought the organization was in severe financial difficulty. So I was elected treasurer, decided to stay in Colorado Springs, went into the office, basically went through the check register and all the bank accounts, and figured out the organization was, was in, uh, for a, about a $2 million annual budget at the time, was $1.6 million in essentially short-term debt and had $6,000 in the bank. Mm. So I reported all of that to the executive committee, and as a reward, they, uh, they had an executive committee, uh, went into executive session without me on the call, came off the call and asked me to be the executive director. And uh, I kind of felt like at that time it was something I needed to do to help uh, essentially save the governing body and, and keep the benefits to the elite athletes in place. I did it under two conditions. One, I had full authority to do 
anything I, I wanted with the staff, with the expenses, with, with everything. And two, I would only be there for six weeks. And six weeks turned into 10 years. Too many of us just accept that underwear will either chafe, ride up, fall apart after a few wears. Gentlemen, we deserve better. That's what Saks Underwear is all about. This is underwear that's reinvented, specifically designed for our anatomy to be both comfortable and supportive. When the company was created, Saks challenged the industry's status quo and created the Ballpark Pouch, which is revolutionary. Everything stays put, complete separation from your thighs and no friction. For someone who's active like me, this is hugely important. Discomfort downstairs erodes my mindfulness, especially on impromptu activities that require physical exertion. So protect yourself in comfort. Now, we've worked with Saks Underwear on this great limited time deal for all of you. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. And to get this offer, you'll need to use my promo code RABEL at checkout. So here we go. Order a few pairs of Saks now by heading to Saks Underwear at saxxunderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X with two X's and use promo code RABEL at checkout. Remember, saxunderwear.com, promo code RABEL. So looking at uh, some of the key areas, you mentioned membership growth, budget success, which you turned around, the national teams and the international approach, education, youth, grassroots and wrestling, and the internet, which was... 90s and through, so you embrace that and position yourself well. If you look at what you know now in 2018, just starting, where do you think national governing bodies should be, kind of sport agnostic, focused, and where's the growth opportunity? Well, I think a, that's a very good question, um, one I hadn't thought about recently, but a couple of things. One, I, we had a, a board member at USA Wrestling when I when I started. Actually, he wasn't a board member. He was a donor, um, and I put him on what I called my advisory board. And he was the CEO of Boston Market. But when he left Boston Market, he started, um, this was sort of the beginning of the, of the Boston Market internet, yeah, internet boom. Um, and he, he had founded 10, 10 internet companies, um, 10 digital companies. Um, Ancestry.com was, was one you might recognize, and, and nine others. And he convinced me that the way to go for us at wrestling was um, content was king. And we had to create content, be able to digitize it, be able to put it out through, um, through channels that were, were now uh, on the web. So I bought a television production company and brought it underneath USA Wrestling. We bought the two highest, our most competitive websites to us. And we didn't put it under a USA Wrestling website. We put it under a site we called themat.com. And so my goal was you know, to create as much content as possible, push it out on, on that site, and build a following for wrestling because it was too difficult through traditional media. We couldn't buy time on NBC and try and reach a wrestling audience that way. But we could try and build it through, through our website and, and through the Internet it existed as it existed at the time. Um, didn't quite work as well as I wanted because... Um, content didn't become as valuable as we all thought it might be at that time in the, the internet boom. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes you can be too soon. Yeah, we were, we were a little early. But when I, when I was at the U.S. Olympic Committee, we took some funds that we were giving to governing bodies on an annual basis for sponsorship, rolled that into what is now TeamUSA.com, and we, we signed the, the rights for 33 governing bodies to bring 
um, their website and social media presence underneath the one umbrella mm. and to try and build an audience for Olympics in the U.S. that way. So whether that's still early or right or works or not, I'm, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I think it's worked well for them. But for the International Lacrosse Federation and for the Olympic movement and sport governing bodies in general, um, you know, the world is moving away from linear television, moving into um, various forms of, of other media, um, mostly streaming digital. And so um, I would advise governing bodies, you have to figure out how to capture and build an audience um, and, and go that route because monetizing and relying on, on broadcast is, is not going to work in the future. But then the second thing is um, have to create a system of youth sports development focused around building excellence in your coaches. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at high-performing, high-impact, highly successful in terms of attracting participants and youth sport programs, at the core of it, there's a, a dedicated group of leaders, whether parents or, or board, but it always cores around a highly successful coach. Wow. Thanks for sharing those stories. The, the, the part that really sits with me is, is the prediction predictive nature around content being king in the 90s on the, on the um, verge of the internet. It, it reminds me of uh, someone like a Reed Hoffman, who was a multiple-time entrepreneur in the internet space and had the vision around social networking years before Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Friendster and, My, and MySpace and even LinkedIn, and he was part of the PayPal mafia with Peter Thiel and... and and spun off and, and did a multiple companies, but it strikes me because the leaders of technology, business, sports, they have to be forecasting future and they have to be right and almost contrarian to what's hap actually happening in the space. And that's a big bet. It's still a bet that, we're, that we, I feel people are making in 2018, certainly 16 and 17, like, hey, let's go long on content. And you guys were there in the 90s doing that. And of course, timing has a big piece of it. Is the technology available? Has it been, you know, has the, the, the mass user base adopted it yet? When is that going to happen? Uh, but content and coaching really resonates for us in lacrosse. And uh, because there's so much more to talk about, uh, and I definitely want to get to everyone's questions, I really like on this podcast discussing origin stories. That's where I've been sitting. And I think there's a lot of crossover lessons that we can learn from other sports. My primarily my guests come from other sports, so I appreciate again you going through there on your history and wrestling. There's a lot to be learned, um, and I don't want to gloss over your role as CEO of the USOC. So we'll continue to revisit that. But that came uh, in the interim. You were an interim CEO after the Salt Lake Games, and for those of us that remember um, the, the the scandal around the bribery to get. Uh, Salt Lake City as the host for the Olympics, and actually an Olympic hasn't been back in the U.S. since then until what's upcoming in 2028. Uh, but you took over there, then were named in 2005 the CEO or, uh, of, of the USOC. And I want to spend a little bit time right now because there's a lot of conversation and has been uh, around lacrosse in the Olympics. It once was an Olympic sport. I think there are a lot of misconceptions that how do you get there? Uh, so let's do a little bit of a 101 on first the IOC, what that is, and then we'll trickle down to the NOCs, which the USOC is one of. So 101, International Olympic Committee, what do they do? 
Uh, that's a very great question because a lot of people really have a misconception because what we read in the press in the U.S. is, you know, the IOC is this sort of corrupt body that gets bought off all the time. Right. And the members like are being, FIFA. yeah, the members are being bribed to, to vote for various games and that happens. But, but the IOC is by and large, um, it was founded in, in the early 1890s by de Coubertin and a, a couple other individuals who were, all, who were world peace advocates and thought that the Olympic Games could serve as an educational tool for athletes, but also bring the world together. Um, since then, it's kind of evolved into um, an organization that really exists outside of any oversight of, of anybody in the world. So the first thing you need to understand is it, it exists outside of any oversight. So it's, it's the supreme body for, for sport, uh, Olympic sport in the world with no oversight. And it's 95 members from around the world who are essentially exceptionally uh, successful business people, uh, royalty or sport um, ministers and governmental um, sport uh, representatives from their country. So it's, a, it's an elite group that is very insulated and impervious to outside influence. And I guess similar, I don't want to draw, I certainly don't want to draw a connection to the NCAA, but under the context of revenue to the Olympics, does that go through the doors of IOC first? They, in other words, reserve the rights to broadcasting, tickets, licensing, yeah, and the, et cetera. The IOC controls the Olympic Games and the Youth Olympic Games, um, and the, it's made up of, of members who are elected um, independent members, but then it also has members from international federations and now athlete members. So those 95 have three groups, the largest being independently elected individuals, then members who represent international federations, then athletes. They control the, the, the awarding of the Olympic Games, but also the television rights and all sponsorship rights for the Olympic Games. Some of which the sponsorship rights, they cede to the organizing committee in the host territory, but the worldwide rights they still control. Um, and that accounts for, uh, other than some, some private donation, that accounts for all of the, the revenues associated with the worldwide movement. They then distribute those 50% to the organizing committees for the Olympic Games, 10% um, to themselves for administration, um, basically 13% to the US Olympic Committee, and the rest to the other international federations and Olympic committees around the world. Why, why the bump to the U.S. Olympic Committee? Because the, the USOC negotiated um, favorable splits of the television revenue and marketing that no other mm -hmm. um, country in the world has. We would say principally because of the strength of the market in the, in the U.S. So the U.S. gets um, 12 and three quarter percent of the uh, television revenue uh, for the host broadcast out of the U.S. Which is NBC Universal. NBC Universal right now, Comcast. And we get 20% of the top program, which are 12, 11 to 12 worldwide Olympic sponsors. Gotcha. And, and the NBC contract that was just restructured in 2014, mm -hmm. that's $4.3 billion roughly yeah. through 2020. Yeah, it's roughly 50%, 50, 48 to 53%, depending on who you talk to, percent of all of the money that comes into the worldwide Olympic movement to the IOC. So NBC and then a GE sponsorship on top of it, Comcast is an incredibly powerful 
um, force in the Olympic movement just right. because of the amount of, of revenue they give. Sure. From a sponsorship capacity, you have the, the, the endemic, non-endemic brands that go through the IOC. What type of uh, capability does a group like the USOC to create their own sponsorship portfolio, if at all? And if they do, do they then go share that back with other member organizations or organizing committees? That's, so the U.S. Olympic Committee is funded by our, our share of the, its share of the NBC revenue, which is probably about $250 million every four years now. And then the domestic sponsorship program, uh, somewhere 100 to $130 million for the quadrennium, and then the top sponsorship program. So the top sponsorship program takes the USOC, gives them 10 to 12 categories, um, as do the other NOCs around the world. They take and sell those. Visa, if you notice their creative collating the Olympic Games is worldwide, not US-centric, whereas some of the USOC sponsors that did a lot of creative, Budweiser, who's no longer a sponsor, was US-centric because that was just a US sponsor. Gotcha. So just to recap, 90% of what the IOC brings in goes to the NOCs, USOB, USOC being one of them, outside of the unique deal that we have because of what we bring to the and table. The, and the OCOGs. And the OCOGs. And so, and, and a portion of that then also goes to the International Paralympics and WADA. They fund WADA, correct? And then yeah. they keep 10% for operational costs? Yeah. Okay, jumping right into uh, a quick exercise here. I'm going I'm to read off some sports. Not all of them, but most. Archery, badminton, basketball, boxing, canoe, curling, diving, fencing, field hockey, figure skating, hockey, judo, gymnastics, luge, roller sports, rowing, rugby, sailing, shooting, skiing, swimming, synchronized swimming, Table tennis, taekwondo, handball, tennis, track and field, water polo, weightlifting, wrestling. Why hasn't lacrosse been included as a recognized sport through the USOC, which are, those are all recognized? Those are, with the exception of roller sports, which is now um, governing skateboarding, which is mm -hmm. in the Tokyo Games, uh, all those are, and they therefore are, becoming recognized at the U.S. Olympic Committee level. Those sports are um, recognized by the IOC as, as official sports for the Olympic Games. So the IOC has two categories, sports that are on the Olympic Games program that are considered Olympic sports, and then they have um, 37 sports that are recognized but not yet on the program of the Olympic Games. So lacrosse is at a first step of the process of has had applied and is in the process of, of evaluation for recognition by the IOC. So once you're officially recognized, you, you become a member of uh, one of the International Federation membership associations, which is controlled by the IOC, um, and you receive 25000 a year from the IOC, which is a small amount of money compared to what they give Olympic governing bodies. Right. Sounds like uh, and, pair of spandex and, yeah. and cleats. It's that for us. Yeah, yep. We are, we are not there yet because, um, one, we, the lacrosse started this in, in 2008 as an international federation emerged and started to, to get its um, organizational structure and, and um, other activities, its anti-doping and other prerequisites that the IOC requires in line. Um, and then was, I think, only maybe in 13, 14, started to pursue this route of, of recognition from the official recognition from the IOC, which is 
the first step towards the IRC considering you um, for inclusion on the Olympic Games program. Now, if you look at these, most of these other 37 sports have spent tens of millions of dollars over the last 20 to 25 years lobbying the IOC, um, changing their world events to become more uh, popular, uh, cost efficient, and more followed around the world, and presenting themselves um, in terms of how their, their sport is presented on the, on the field of play in a way that might attract the IOC um, interest and recognition. And they've been applying at every opportunity um, to go to, to get onto the Olympic Games program, um, which the IOC started probably in 1996, started talking about taking sports off the program, putting new sports on the program. After two, the 2000 Games, they started that process in, in earnest and ultimately took baseball and softball off the program, put rugby sevens and golf on the program. Um, and there are a lot of sports have spent tremendous amount of time and energy to queue up for that because they see the incredible benefits of being mm -hmm. on the Olympic sport program. Not only several million dollars a year directly from the IOC, but the worldwide exposure and interest that being on the Olympic program creates, as well as a draw for athletes to participate in their sport with the goal of competing in the games. Gotcha. Then and now, lacrosse used to be an Olympic sport. Um, what takes place or what happened in, in the time in between, was it primarily restructuring of the way the Olympic sports are, are positioned, the IOC's entrance into the game? We'll start there briefly, and then I want to ask some questions around misconceptions of what we think from the well, public standpoint. I think back in, in, in that time when, when lacrosse was competed on the games, the IOC let the organizing committee have a big sway in which sports were participated in the games. And it isn't like it's become in the last 30 years. Um, and so up until recently, organizing committees could still add one or two sports for the games um, as exhibition sports. I mean, Taekwondo. They call them demonstration Yeah, demonstration sports. Yeah. sports. Taekwondo was added in 88. I think we added women's softball in, in 96. It might have been earlier, but softball was added. And so, this program kept getting larger and larger. And around two, the 2004 to 2008 timeframe, the IOC said, we've got to cap the size of the games. And so last, uh, two years ago, when Olympic 2020 was passed, which was a slate of reforms for the worldwide Olympic movement that the IOC passed, they put a firm cap on the Olympic games of 10,500 athletes and 310 events. And they, set, they fixed the program of Olympic sports. These are the full-time Olympic sports. Nobody else is going to get into that group for the time being. And that was because wrestling got voted off the program, got voted back in, completely embarrassed the IOC because they'd had eight other sports that were vying to get on the program, and they had that one slot open. And those sports had spent years and millions of dollars positioning themselves and making presentations to the IOC and none of them got on the program. So they created a new avenue, which allows the organizing committee to select new sports for, for inclusion in the games. It's called the host city proposal process. Tokyo 2020 was the first organizing committee that was allowed to pursue this process. So four years before the games, they sent out a request to these 37 uh, recognized sports federations 
uh, for a proposal to participate their sport in the games. So all those sports, um, not all of them, 25 of them replied and said, here's what our sport would look like in, in your games. Here's what it would cost. Here's the following we have. They selected eight finalists, brought them into Tokyo. Those sports made presentations. They selected five, sent those sports to the IOC Program Commission. The Program Commission confirmed those five sports. They were voted on in Rio by the IOC General Assembly. And so skateboarding, um, rock climbing, surfing, uh, baseball, softball, and karate are not official Olympic sports, but they are included on the program of the Tokyo Games. And so that's the avenue for us in lacrosse for the time being, both in the Paris process, if we're recognized in time, and then the, which is probably our best opportunity, is the LA 2028 Games. Gotcha. So going through that process now and why someone of your pedigree is leading the charge for us, which we're, we feel really fortunate around. Uh, if, if you can be as direct and um, not feel the pressure of, of being quoted, what, what does our sport look like in either Paris or LA if we were to get the recognition? And when I say look like, that competitive landscape of kind of gender neutrality, uh, equipment, size of the field, number of participants during a match. Like, where do you think we need to land? What do you think about at night to get us there? Without having talked to a, num a great number of IOC members about it, um, the process is a huge emphasis on um, gender equity, limiting the total number of athletes, um, limiting the cost and complexity of staging that event. You don't, if you have to build a stadium, you're dead in the water. Mm. So you've got to be able to participate on a pitch that's already there. You've got to have equal numbers of men and women, and you've got to lower your total numbers. So th those three things I know are critical and we have to do. Um, outside of that, we have to continue to build uh, more of a following on um, other forms of media outside of, of linear broadcast. Mm. So those, those four things are absolutely critical. Um, but to get there, we also need to, to present the sport in the right light. Um, and the sport has, as you all know, has incredibly tremendous um, positives and values that, that make it a prime candidate to be on the Olympic program. But we also are completely unknown in, in the IOC. <clears throat> Excuse me, both as a sport, if you, if you mention of the 95 IOC members, what do you think about lacrosse? Most of them would have very little idea that what the sport is, how it's played, what it looks like. Um, and then on top of that, they would not have um, any idea who any of the leaders of lacrosse are internationally. And there's an adage in the IOC that, that is, is well known and it's very true. If you're not, um, if they don't know you, like you and trust you, they're not going to vote for you. Mm. You have to be known, liked, and trusted in the IOC. So we have to, to build that relationship as, as a sport and as sport leaders with the IOC. Well, if, if you're looking for uh, some athletes to come and present, I, I'd be happy to volunteer. I think that would be a, a fun exercise and, and really uh, interesting. Um, back, backpedaling a little bit to... Um, the actual change of product. So listening to you, perhaps a seven-on-seven, seven, 
maybe losing the gear to get more like the women's game or they pick up gear, but gear is another obstacle and doesn't position well on, on television. So hypothetically, seven on seven, no helmet, shot clock, fits the field that's already there from a stadium capacity. Who's actually making the decision on that? Because what we're used to as, um, as players in a number of different categories in the sport is seeing the coaches associations, bark over a minor rule change. The NCAA taking years to adopt some recruiting legislation. You know, Steve Center says I mentioned here, U.S. Lacrosse, they're pushing youth initiatives that aren't getting massively adopted. Like, who, is there, is there a group? Can you just go in there and say, here's what we're doing? And, I mean, I'd be okay with that, I'd support it, but I'd, I see that as being a challenge. It, it is, and I think change is difficult in, in any organization. I think... I read a quote recently. It said, change is hard in the beginning, it's messy in the middle, and it's gorgeous at the end. Mm. Um, it's really difficult to change, especially an international body when you've got um, 60 countries from around the world all approaching it from a different perspective. But I've been very, very pleased by the Phil Board's willingness to take a look at, as we were calling it, reimagining uh, the events platform mm. and taking a look. So... Um, and I think one of the things that can be a catalyst to make that change more quickly is the vision of, of being on the Olympic program and using that as, as, a, as a driver. But it'll be discussed this weekend at the Phil Board. Uh, hopefully we can, we can run it um, through both the Olympic Organizing Committee's um, impressions and gauntlet, run it through a number of IOC members, run it back through um, some ad hoc committees that we want to set up, including athletes and coaches and sport administrators from around the world in lacrosse, and then get some meaningful progress at the General Assembly yep. um, next summer in Israel. So I, I think we're on the right track. Um, it's not easy. It's going to take a lot of work. But we've, I think we have to conceptualize it at the, the fill board level and then allow that concept to be tested and changed and altered by the will of, uh, of the people who, who are actually really running the sport and participating in the sport worldwide. Today's show is brought to you by Unchartered Supply Co. They're a complete 72-hour survival system that contains 35 top-quality tools and instructions you'll need to survive in a hurricane, earthquake, or any emergency situation. Here are some of my notes. 95% of all survival situations are resolved in 72 hours. But what you do in those 72 hours can mean the difference between life and death. Uncharted Supply Co., which is curated by survival experts, contains tools that are housed in a roll-top backpack that is so airtight, it can even be used as a flotation device. They sent me one of their backpacks, and I immediately thought to myself, should I be in a situation where I need to survive? I know now that I can handle it. In total, the 72 only weighs 11 and a half pounds, and where times are changing, the 72 is the product every home, office, and car in America should have. When emergency arises, be part of the solution, because the more prepared you are, the safer the world is. Right now, my Student Up podcast listeners can get $50 off at UnchartedSupplyCo.com when you use my code RABEL at checkout. That's $50 off Survival System. That's the largest discount we've ever given for any of our advertisers. Again, use my code RABEL at UnchartedSupplyCo.com for $50 off. I would say amidst, uh, it's, it's obviously what, where you're handling is very complex. There's a lot of things going on, but if I were to distill it to two, one is the application that's already taken place and we're waiting to hear back. We might hear in June, perhaps, or July. We, we discussed before the show, like, 
just before the World Games in, in yeah, July? Yeah, June is a slated IOC executive board meeting, mm -hmm. mid, mid to late June. Um, the process was slated. We were one of four sports that were, were going before the IOC executive board in December. Uh, and as I understand it, we were one of the two sports that were being recommended for recognition of the four. There were 12 that had applied. Unfortunately, um, the IOC executive board had a huge amount of work on its plate in December because of wrestling with the decision of whether or not to, how to penalize Russian uh, federations mm -hmm. and athletes and governments for their anti-doping violations. So that was, and the Agenda 2020 reform. So that was taking up a lot of their energy. But they also were uncertain as to the process of how recognized sports are um, recommended and brought before the IOC executive board. It had been a staff-driven process. The executive board came back and, and said, well, why don't we have GAFES, the General Assembly of International Sport Federations, review these as well, make recommendations. So they're working on process, not, not particularly looking at our recommendation, but they're reviewing the process. So we kind of got caught up in that backwash. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll get back before um, the IOC executive board this summer before Israel. And how are you feeling about the likelihood of well, I think I think we'll we'll be successful if the executive board takes it up again at that meeting. Uh, I believe very strongly that our cross will be recognized. And, and who's the other sport? And are they um, only going to take one of the two, or potentially both of us? I think only only the two, and uh, the the other four sports are escaping me. Gotcha. Uh, the part two. So that's part one. Part two is three sports. Is, is the urgency, hopefully the sense of urgency around, okay, what would our sport look like? It's really interesting because it feels like a chicken or egg scenario where we're going to get recognition, but recognition, I suppose, is different than actual inclusion in the games. So recognition, then we hit the ground running like a startup and say, okay, what's our sport look like? In a way, we're getting some funding from the USOC, maybe some private, and then we're saying, okay, now include this version. Is there a sense of urgency? I know you guys are meeting this weekend, um, but overall, do you think that can get done in a year, in six months? Well, the way I'm looking at it, and there is an incredible sense of urgency from, from the Phil board and, 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 and myself, and I, I, it's, I think, a seven-year process for, for Phil, looking at our opportunities and the, the landscape out there. So Paris will start their process um, this summer of of which sports they'll include in the program. And so that'll, that's um, six years before their games. It'll be a two-year process, um, and four years before their, ga their games, the IOC will vote on which sports will be in. So we would like to be recognized and participate in this process because the more times you knock on the door, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. But our opportunity in Paris is, is difficult because mm -hmm. you, the IOC and, and the organizing committee really started this process for two reasons. One, to alleviate pressure from sports who want to be in the games, but two, to help the organizing committee succeed in their country. So, you know, there's been talk of parkour or other sports. We don't even really have an international <laughs> governing body being brought into the games in Paris because it's incredibly popular in, right. in, in France and Paris, and it's viewed as an urban sport, which it's for some reason the IOC wants sports that are, that are participated and played in urban areas. Um, and so one of the things we might look at is how do we have 
a different version of the game played in, in urban areas and started um, around the world for lacrosse. But, um, so it's gotta be something that really drives interest um, and revenue to the organizing committee in that country. And so we're not positioned that way in France right now. Um, doesn't mean we still don't wanna push hard and do everything we can and go through the process, mm -hmm. but we have an incredible opportunity um, in Los Angeles. And so that would be, that process would start in 2022 um, and end in 2024. But that means that right now we should be working uh, you know, overtime, every day, double time to get ourselves changed and positioned for the start of that process. Yep. And, and while it might seem like we've got a lot of time, um, we're essentially, you know, moving mountains here, picking right. up dimes with a bulldozer. We, we've got to be focused. We've got to build resources and we've got to go after it with a passion every day from now until the start of that process in 2022. Would we'll be huge for our sport. I would say very speculative for me as a player to, uh, to think through 2028. So maybe I'll help push for, for France, which would also be really <laughs> ambitious. Um, but uh, Steve, I'll, I'll submit an application to coach because I would love to be in some way, shape or form in the Olympics. But um, Terry, I know we're, we're closing in on time. If, if I could get, yeah, a few minutes, I, I um, preface that by uh, suggesting we, we may uh, go a little bit longer. But there were a number of good questions that came through. Uh, and the first one that I'll read is, is uh, kind of in line with content being king different form of content now. You purchase a television arm, uh, you, you were buying up URLs that helped with USA Wrestling. New media, um, which are the platforms that are now purchasing broadcasting rights and even Comcast owning NBC Universal, launched their own OTT, which there was a little bit of um, adaptation to that at the IOC and USOC level, and we'll see some of the games being broadcasted this winter on their OTT, some of the actual participation. Part, uh, participatory sports and competitions. How do you think new media will impact the Winter Olympics this month or next month? And when I say impact, do you think viewership is going to continue to increase? Is it, gonna, is it plateaued? Is it going to decline? Are you uncertain? Um, and then the impact that will have then on sponsors and overall revenue for, for IOC, USOC, and other NOCs. That's a great question because it's really driving where the IOC ultimately wants to go with the sport program and has a huge potential effect on lacrosse's inclusion in the game or any other sports inclusion in the game. NBC has been able to monetize their investments in the Olympics through the sale of advertising rights and the sale of subscriptions to the five cable networks that they put the games on. So 10 cents a month, they sell you know, another 100,000 of those. It adds up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how they've monetized that huge investment. But what's happened with their viewership is, is two things. The demographic is skewing significantly older. It's folks like, like me and older who, who uh, you know, have loved the Olympics um, and gather around the television when you mm. know, there was three ways to watch the Olympics, and we still want to do that. And NBC coined the phrase, must-watch television. Yep. And live sporting events are still one of the things that's much watch television, but that gets um, minimized in the Olympics because of time zone changes and all, all the other kind of things. Um, plus now the advent, 
Um, and NBC says Rio was the most watched sporting event in history. It wasn't the most watched sporting event in history on their linear broadcast because those numbers went way down. Hmm. But it was the most watched because people watched it on all these other forms, um, whether it was some part of it on social media, some part of it on um, you know, their streaming outlets, um, some part of it in, you know, people are typing it and sending it out on social media themselves and they have no way to monetize it. So somebody takes their phone and watches 30 seconds or 45 seconds of the figure skating finals, puts who at the games, puts who won out and the, everybody in the world has it before NBC can build up their, their broadcast around it. And there's no way for them to monetize that. So there may be more viewers, but they still haven't figured out a way to monetize it yet. Um, and now you've got rights, big rights fees being paid by um, some of these other um, new media or social media giants, um, which will be great in the short run, but it still has to be, they also have to figure out how to monetize it. They're still buying content, um, which is great for the, the rights holders. But in the end of the day, we all still need to figure out how to, how to monetize it. But one thing we do know is the ownership and creation of that content is still going to be king. And the ability to build an audience for your sport so that people are tuning in and following it and you have, can point to a, a significant number of people to the IOC and justify it that, oh, wait a minute, we've got you know, 2 million followers of our YouTube channel and when we're at our world championships, we have you know, 5 million people going on Facebook to view parts of it and we, we sold you know, 500,000 um, behind the, uh, the screen digital um, streams and we were able to monetize it this way. If you can tell that to the IOC, um, not, all, well, not only do you, you get the exposure and, and revenue from it, but you have a more compelling story to tell the IOC because you know, they, they've got to be able to monetize the Olympic Games and fund their whole machine. They've got to be able to give resources to the organizing committees to, to be able to stage this you know, huge monolithic games that nobody can pay for anymore. And they've got to have exciting sports to, that are co cost efficient um, to be able to host these games. So all of those things we need to, to look at and build. Quick follow-up for the World Games this July. Um, there hasn't been much conversation yet on, which will, will be in Israel, um, where the games can be viewed. Are you looking at structuring deals? Is there a platform that, that you like better than the others? Facebook? Um, Amazon, Twitter, and way of live broadcasting, and then perhaps snackable content on YouTube, or looking at all, looking Netflix. at all of that. The rights are, are owned by the organizer, um, the Israeli organizing committee. Um, okay. Scott Neese, who many of you know, is, is working on the exploitation of those rights. We're very close to a broadcast and streaming deal with with one broadcaster. And then we're working on, outside of one territory, how we can um, best distribute the rest of that content and, and, and get the rest of the world to view it um, as cost efficiently as possible. So yep. very close to the end of the deal, um, probably not able to announce right now. Gotcha. Yeah, and from a production standpoint, often we forget that we just think that the feed shows up. Um, so the last follow-up to that specifically, and it's under the assumption how most of these um, non-traditional platforms work is they would want us to do the production and they pick up the feed. Uh, in this particular case is the Israeli group uh, supported by the FIL and other uh, NGBs. Are we planning to 
help fund the production, whether it be outsourced the, or bring in the, ours, the, or is the platform or broadcaster going to pick the it up? The local organizing committee through a local um, television broadcaster in Israel is funding the production. So all of the games will be produced. 10, 12 games will have a higher production quality than the rest. Gotcha. Two more questions, because I'm just enjoying this uh, so much, and these are from you guys. Um, in regards to growth of the game overseas, there's a certain level of enthusiasm at the university level. In order to maximize gross overseas, should the concentration be on growing the game at the university level or youth level? I'm probably not the person to ask that question. However, um, you've got great instincts. It, it, so. it depends on, on the country. And what I've seen in wrestling, um, in Japan, for example, the growth of wrestling has been spurred through the university level. Hmm. Some countries just don't have that culture, and so you'll have to go the, through youth sports and through clubs, the, the clubs, existing clubs for other sports that might sponsor lacrosse programs. And so it, it, I don't think there's a blanket answer. I think mm -hmm. it's a country-by-country country, uh, analysis on that one. Yeah, and I'll add to that from the perspective of, of the U.S., you know, I, I always tell people when they ask about lacrosse is we have product market fit. The NCAA is one of the highest viewed Final Four and attended Final Fours in all team sports on an annual basis. College lacrosse is sitting at the Mecca and many of us benefit, whether at the youth high school or pro level, from such. So if the country has that type of construct available, I'd agree, go the university route. Youth route's really important. I would also say for the pro leagues to consider overseas tours, and you look at some of uh, our peer groups, whether it be the NBA or the NFL pursuing that route, uh, specifically in Asia-Pacific markets where professional leagues or tours have an opportunity to really create a groundswell. Uh, final question, and this goes for all of us. What can the average fan do to help lacrosse get into the Olympics? Well, consume the sport on media. And, and you know, I'm one of the, the worst people about this in my own sport. You know, I'll try and, and keep up with wrestling, but I don't make an effort to, to really go out of the way to, to consume the sport. And so I think as fans of lacrosse, I mean, as as administrators, our job is to make that content available. But we need to get, to get the consumer to, to find it and make an effort to, to, uh, to watch it and, uh, and support it. And we'll need financial support. And I think outside of that, um, you know, when I tell athletes in wrestling, I want to make a difference in my sport now that I'm done being an athlete, um, now that I'm a, just a fan of the sport. So go start a club. Go coach a club. Yep. Find some kids and, and help them play. Yeah. Content and coaching, going back to Jim's experience with wrestling in the 90s and, and to what I think prevails today. Uh, what I'd like to add without acknowledging certain jurisdictions and obviously businesses and the health of businesses and the competition in a capitalist market, which is encouraged and I believe in, is what we can do, at least during our free time, if it doesn't conflict with your duties and your businesses, attend view. So attend the games that you can. Attendance is huge. Uh, that, that trickles down from a viewership capacity and anchoring broadcasting deals and bringing sponsors on site. Make sure you're tuning in to the games and the programming. Uh, that's really valuable. And then word of mouth is, is talk about the sport. Word of mouth is still the most powerful form of marketing for any business, product, or service. Um, so you guys being here and, and listening and, and me getting the opportunity to 
to sit down with you and hear the state of our sport at the international level as well as your history. Uh, feel really fortunate that you're with us, and thanks for sharing your time, Jim. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and thanks for, for your attention today. It was, it was fantastic. I enjoyed it. Cool. If you enjoyed Jim and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. Continue that with me on social media. My Twitter and Instagram handles are at Paul Rabel. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with recent Big Ten champion head coach, congratulations, also my college coach and Johns Hopkins great, Dave Petromala. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, when you find us, please hit subscribe. Shortcut to our show notes at suitingupodcast.com. And of course, thank you to today's sponsors, Uncharted Supply Co. and Saks Underwear. On both websites, you can use promo code RABEL at checkout for your discount. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>